0: It's Monday, March 6th, and it shouldn't be this hard to keep trains upright. We start here. For the second time in a month, a freight train tumbles off the tracks in Ohio. One by one, the the cars just start careening and metal starts flying. And yes, this was once again a Norfolk Southern train. We'll take you to the scene. We're a year and a half out from Election Day and former President Trump is already forcing rivals to reconsider.
1: The more candidates you put in the I'm not Donald Trump field, the more they're going to chop up each other's vote.
0: It was a busy weekend on the pre-campaign trail, and the federal government says they're allowed to send abortion pills anywhere, but they won't.
2: We're not going to offer it there, even though it's legal, because your attorney general has told us that they don't want it.
0: The future of medication abortion isn't clear, not even in states where it's legal. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. to ship something. Trains are supposed to be the most reliable, right? There's only two ways for a train to go, backwards or forwards. There are no waves or wind shear. The driver doesn't have to get creative. There's not even much traffic to speak of. They're literally supposed to run on time. And yet when something goes wrong, we've seen just how devastating train wrecks can be and how angry people can get when that sense of predictability is shattered.
3: At first you're just kind of like I guess, you know, watching the slow-motion train wreck, but then all of a sudden, you're like, well, you know, now that it's not moving no more, it could go really dangerous really quick.
0: In East Palestine, Ohio, you're starting to see signs that say in big, bold letters, keep out. These are marking the edges of hazardous cleanup sites where millions of gallons of chemicals have already been hauled away. Overseas, accidents have been even more deadly. That's the sound of protests that erupted in violence this weekend in Greece after two trains careened toward each other for 12 minutes in the lead-up to a crash that killed more than 50 people. It hasn't reached that level here in the states, but officials have been clear that the number of derailments, which had been going down but are now going back up, need to come down urgently.
3: Officials responded to a train derailment in Springfield Township in Clark County, Ohio, on Saturday, March 4th. Well, then this weekend,
0: a train once again barreled off the tracks. This happened to be in the same state as the East Palestine crash, and that train belonged to the same company. Let's take you straight out to
3: ABC's Alex Preshay, who's based in Ohio. He was covering the East Palestine derailment. Where are you right now, Alex? So, Brad, I am in Springfield, Ohio, which is nestled between Columbus, uh, where I'm based, and, and Dayton. And I mean, this is the site of the latest derailment of a train here in this state, uh, and it just so happens to be uh, another Norfolk Southern train. This accident was caught on dash cam, essentially, and so what you see is this this train, which has more than 200 cars on it, it's more than 50 cars longer than the one in East Palestine, is going through a rail crossing, and this dash cam video catches it kind of wobble. And eventually, it wobbles to the point where one of the cars nicks a pole at this crossing. And then, you know, just one by one, the the cars just start careening and metal starts flying. 28 of the 212 cars on this train derailed. And Brad, I got to tell you, I got a chance to, to get up pretty close to it. Where this is situated, it's a lot of industrial and businesses, but there's one house on this stretch of highway that's next to the rail line here and the cars i mean they're feet from this home's backyard
0: wow so how incredibly scary for anyone who was close to this i mean how dangerous was this wreck compared to say what we saw in East
3: Palestine like like what what was it carrying so what we know so far is that i mean this train wasn't hauling anything nearly as, as dangerous as, as the one in East Palestine. Uh, there were four empty tankers with residual amounts of diesel exhaust fluid and, and common industrial products, which, look, I mean, that's something to be concerned about, certainly. But that's not the vinyl chloride that we were talking about in East Palestine.
2: We will be on site ensuring that as cars are removed by Norfolk Southern, that the soil is not impacted under the ground.
3: Ohio's EPA is really kind of like looking into this. And, And what they're saying is that there has been no release of any hazardous chemical material into the soil, into the air, or into the water. Uh, like we saw in, in in East Palestine, but it's something they're gonna, they're going to track. Yeah, Norfolk Southern put out a statement immediately saying no hazardous materials are
0: involved. There have been no reported injuries. Our teams are en route to the site to begin cleanup operations. But I mean, Alex, is there a broader issue here with freight train safety in this country?
3: Well, the data shows that I mean trains historically have gotten safer, but I, I think also keep in mind. That with the derailment in East Palestine and certainly some of the others that we've covered in in, in the weeks that have passed since then, we as news consumers and even news reporters are, are probably a little more sensitive to news about train derailments in this moment.
4: Ohio's now had four derailments in the last five months. East Palestine was the most serious but we still have questions Are there uh, about these other derailments, too.
3: So, yes, it has kind of been a, a rocky year, especially for, for, for trains in Ohio. But I also think part of that is just us being more sensitive to news like this.
2: Well, I was sad to hear it, and I just don't understand why we're having all these train derailments all of a
3: sudden. Brad, the big outstanding question right now is what caused this accident? We don't yet know. Right. And that's where you have this debate unfolding, is unions saying, hey, we, we've known that we'd have safety
0: issues as we continue to see regulations rolled back, especially during the Trump administration. But one year does not necessarily a trend make. So we'll see what happens. Alex Preshay there in Ohio. Thank you. Thank you. Next up on Start Here, the more challengers Donald Trump gets, the stronger he becomes. That's the theory anyway. We're back in a bit. With daylight saving time upon us, we're looking forward to more daylight and longer days from March through November, and while setting our clocks forward gives us the illusion of more time, it doesn't necessarily help businesses find qualified candidates any sooner. Fear not, there is a solution. ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter's your 24-7 hiring partner, working tirelessly to connect you with the right candidate. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, it gets distributed to over 100 job sites, ensuring you reach a diverse pool of qualified individuals. Their smart technology scans thousands of resumes, matching you with people whose skills perfectly align with your job requirements. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why 4 out of 5 employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free, ziprecruiter.com slash start here. Again, that's ziprecruiter.com slash start here. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We talked last week about the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, which was once, if not a kingmaker for conservatives, at least a kind of popularity contest in right-wing circles.
2: I'm just a common citizen, but in my opinion, there is no Republican Party without Donald
0: J. Trump. Since Donald Trump won over the CPAC crowd, though, it's kind of become this MAGA-fest with perhaps less predictive power over who will actually win the Republican presidential nomination.
4: I am your warrior, I am your justice... And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I
0: am your retribution. But this weekend, former President Trump was there rallying that base in perhaps his most notable appearance of his new presidential campaign. And this weekend told us a lot about the dynamics of the broader GOP right now. Let's go to Sarah Isger. She's a Republican strategist, a campaign veteran. Sarah, first off. There are real questions over whether Trump might become the first presidential candidate to be running while indicted if he is indeed charged in any of these investigations he's facing. What was the message that he sent this weekend?
1: Look, I am your retribution, right? Like, Hmm. this was Trump's hometown crowd. If, you know, we've moved away from uh, politicians representing their state in a lot of respects. This was Trump's state, though.
4: That's why I'm here today. That's... Why I'm standing before you because we are going to finish what we started.
1: And so I think he felt incredibly comfortable. It's been a rocky start to his campaign, and this was coming home. And so the speech that you saw at CPAC, I think, was both testing out some of the themes he wants for his 2024 campaign, but also speaking to the friendliest crowd he's going to be talking to
0: on this campaign trail. Is there a case he has to make, though, to like win this group of people back since he lost or like what, what, what resonates with this crowd and has he already essentially got it
1: yeah I mean look what resonates with this crowd is Donald Trump so I mean, right. it's a bit circular right. but certainly this idea for lack of a better term right victimhood
4: we will teach our values and promote our history and our traditions To our children, we will, in other words, be proud of our country again.
1: Victimhood by a woke culture, victimhood Mm. by D.C. establishment. And maybe more than anything else for this crowd, um, a victimization by the Republican establishment that the Republican Party has let this crowd down since Ronald Reagan. I mean, look, in some ways, um, what we're seeing is the breakup of the Reagan coalition. We've all been talking about that since really 2020 post-2012 election, if you will. It comes to fruition with Donald Trump's election in 2016, and now part of the message is we're not going back.
4: We had a Republican Party that was ruled by freaks, neocons, (laughs) globalists, open-border zealots, And fools.
1: We're not going back to the three-legged stool. We're not going going back back to the, as he put it, you know, the Paul Ryans and the Bushes running this Republican Party anymore and continuing that Reagan legacy. This is a new Republican Party and it's populist and uh, it has different policy beliefs than that. But most importantly, it's not those guys.
0: Speaking of those guys, um, Governor Larry Hogan, the Republican from Maryland, he's very much anti-Trump. He's very establishment Republican, right? Right. He now says he's not running. In fact, he told CBS the reason he's not running is because he doesn't want to dilute the field to see Trump re-elected president.
3: I didn't want to have a uh, pileup of a bunch of people fighting. Uh, the more of them you have, the less chance you have for somebody rising up.
0: So when I hear that, Sarah, I'm wondering, like, is that an excuse? Like, he just knows he's not popular? <laughs> or is that a real fear in the Republican Party, that enough people join the race, Trump wins again?
1: Um, both. So, hmm. and I'm not the first person to say this, but, you know, I just mentioned the 2012 election. And there's an argument that that is the most important election of our lifetime, really. Mm. And it's because it's the end of that Reagan Republican coalition at its peak power.
4: This is a time of great challenges for America. And I pray that the president will be successful in guiding our nation.
1: When Mitt Romney lost in 2012, a candidate who Republicans thought was already their compromise, if you will, and he had the temperament, you know, he was kind and gentle and he was portrayed as a crony capitalist and an evil corporatist. Um, Immigration, he was compromising on all of these things and he still loses... For a real chunk of the Republican Party, they were like, never again. If we're going to lose with this guy, we're not going to compromise anymore. And then when Donald Trump wins in 2016, it was a fulfillment that their theory was right. Mm. Stop nominating sort of the milk toast compromise and go full bore whatever Donald Trump is, and that actually can help you win. Uh, of course, and uh, look, I'm, I'm giving you the perspective from the Republican side. I get the popular vote stuff and everything else um, that maybe counters that. But if you're Larry Hogan, yes, the more candidates you put in the I'm not Donald Trump field, the more they're going to chop up each other's vote.
0: Which basically happened in 2016, right?
1: Oh, my God. I mean, obviously, I was running Carly Fiorina's campaign and all you would hear was every candidate say, well, I don't need to take on Donald Trump. I just need to get in that one-on-one race with him and I'll win. And so they kept taking on each other.
0: Marco has more of an allegiance to Chuck Schumer and to the liberals than he does to conservative policy.
1: And they never got into a one-on-one race with Donald Trump. In the end, Ted Cruz still had John Kasich to deal with Hmm. um, at that very end. So I think that Larry Hogan's absolutely telling the truth, but also Larry Hogan wasn't going to be that guy. For all the reasons that we've just talked about, there is simply not an appetite for a Larry Hogan in that field.
3: Parents in the state of Florida should be able to send their kids to elementary school without having an agenda jammed down their throats.
1: Which gets to then this question of whether, look, is Trump-DeSantis a binary race where DeSantis is, you know, the not-Trump vote? Or is there still a larger field out there? You know, is Nikki Haley a viable candidate or Tim Scott or Asa Hutchison or whomever else? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's really the ongoing question for Republican-y grass tips, D.C. operative types.
0: Right. That's interesting. You have people position themselves to the right and to the left, perhaps, of President Trump. And yet, if it just becomes about him, as obviously it did in 2016, that does create a real problem for anyone not named Donald Trump. All right. Sarah Isger, thanks so much. Thank you. The post office occupies such a unique position in so many communities, because unless you're like a military town or a state capital, the federal government does usually not have a huge presence where you are, except perhaps the post office. Everything that happens in there is subject to federal laws, federal guidelines. And according to federal law, abortion pills are legal to send in the U.S. mail since states don't get to interfere with the mail, you might think that's the end of the debate on whether someone in another state can send you abortion medication. But heading into the weekend, the mega-pharmacy Walgreens announced it will not be sending abortion pills in the mail to nearly half the states in the union. ABC's Ann Flaherty covers federal policy, and and this sounds like it's about potential lawsuits from red states, right? What's happening here?
2: So what's happening is that Walgreens is saying that they just don't want to get involved. They got this letter from uh, 21 conservative-led states that threaten legal action against them and said, you know, if you provide this Mifepristone, this abortion drug through your pharmacies, as the federal government has said you can do, uh, we're going to go after you legally. And I think some people were wondering, you know, are are these pharmacies going to stand up to these conservative states and say, no, we want to be able to sell this abortion drug. And Walgreens making clear here, you know, we don't want to get involved in this. We absolutely won't sell them in states that don't want them. Now, of these 21 states, um, many of them have just banned abortion outright. So they would be in conflict with abortion laws there. Uh, What's interesting about this latest announcement is that four of these states, Kansas, Montana, Iowa, and Alaska, uh, that's where abortion is actually legal.
0: I was going to say, I was like, am I getting my math wrong? There aren't 20 states that have banned this medication.
2: Well, so these four states and, you know, Kansas recently voted on it. Abortion is legal there. You can get the abortion drug mifepristone. And what they're saying is we're not going to offer it there even though it's legal because – your attorney general has told us that they don't want it. And what these attorneys general are going after is this old Civil War era law. It's 1873, prohibits the mailing of any substance that can cause an abortion. This is called the Comstock Act. Mm. And, you know, it's interestingly enough, it also prohibited the mailing of birth control. And then they had to repeal that uh, in recent decades so that People could get their birth controls through the mail. But that law remains on the books. So it remains against the law to mail anything that would cause an abortion, and that would include mifepristone.
0: Well, so they might have a case then, right? Like if I was a big international drug chain, I would – and somebody told me what you're doing is illegal in our state. We will sue you until you are bankrupt. Like I'd probably be nervous too. (laughs)
2: I mean, I think what they're saying is it's very fluid. Everything is very fluid. You have at least Mm. four major legal cases working their way through the courts right now just relating to this mifepristone. Abortion medication is hands down where the legal fight is on abortion right now. And they want to see where some of these judges come down. And I think that in looking at all of these cases, it's very clear to me that this is eventually going to get to the Supreme Court. Mm. And what they're saying is, look, you know, we, we don't want picketers outside of our, our pharmacies. We just want to be able to comply with the law. Right now, we're going to comply with state law, even if it clashes with federal law, with the federal policy. The FDA says this pill is, is safe and effective, but we don't want to run a fell of state law until somebody sort of figures this out. And I think what they're waiting for is for this to get to the Supreme
0: Court. Well, and and as for the drug itself, like, is it a, the FDA basically, you know, sort of in the middle of the pandemic, as people are getting all these drugs sent to them via the mail, the FDA comes out and says, actually, the abortion drug can be sent to the mail. But is that a given that that will remain the case? Because I know there are legal challenges to that as well.
2: That's right. So what the FDA has said is that you can not only mail this, But it can be provided through pharmacies so long as pharmacies follow certain rules. So they still have some tight requirements around this drug, but they've really loosened it in about the past year. One of the biggest cases that we're watching, Brad, is coming out of Texas. And this is out of a federal district court in Amarillo, Texas. Conservatives have filed a complaint saying that the FDA was politicized, that they erred in their judgment, Uh, They shouldn't have approved this drug 20 years ago, and it should be pulled from the market. Mm. The Biden administration has been very clear uh, about how it has a a policy of promoting abortion and that that's behind the FDA's decisions today. They say that the FDA was politicized, and that's why they approved it uh, two decades ago. I asked them, why did it take so long to then file this lawsuit? And they said they've been appealing the FDA to reconsider this and that it's they've ran out of options. So now they're going to federal court. Unfortunately, the FDA has approved distribution plans allowing for mail order abortion, you know, sometimes just with filling out an online questionnaire. And that's contrary to this statute that Congress passed. I do want to point out that mainstream medical experts do not say that this drug is unsafe. In fact, they say that the 20 years that it's been on the market, it's been extremely safe and they have not seen any safety signals. So we are literally waiting for that ruling to come down any day now. And if that,
0: Wait, once that... The implication being that what this drug could just be banned
2: everywhere? That the entire drug could be pulled from the market. Wow. And I think what this does is it raises serious questions about who has the right to decide what medications Americans can take. And this goes beyond abortion medication. It could apply to anything. Birth control, vaccines. When you have advocacy groups suing in federal court to say, we don't think the FDA knows what they're doing. And a federal judge says, I agree and can pull something off the market. From what I can tell, that's absolutely unprecedented.
0: Right. That you would have just non-scientists telling scientists, actually, you should ban this. Actually, you shouldn't have banned this. All right. Uh, Fascinating moment. And Flaherty. Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, if it had been sitting there for 2,000 years, you'd think they'd give it a couple more weeks to double-check it was real. One last thing is next.
2: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.
0: And one last thing. When I was growing up, I was in love with the idea of finding an ancient artifact. Like, what if on the very beach I was walking on was buried treasure? And when you're in that mindset, every rock looks like an old arrowhead, right? Every beer bottle might have an old message in it. Well, recently, archaeologists in Israel have admitted they got a huge discovery way wrong. We're here in Telechish because we were lucky enough to discover the first written evidence of Darius the Great anywhere in the land of Israel. That's uh, Elon uh, Levy, a media advisor to the Israeli president, in a video put out last week by Israel's official antiquities authority. And he describes stumbling across a piece of chipped-off ceramic, what archaeologists call a sherd. He bends down, picks this sherd up, and sees writing on it. Israel's official antiquities authority examines it, and last week announces this was etched 2,500 years ago. It was just found lying on the surface. That's Robert Cargill, a classics professor at the University of Iowa. He deals specifically with this period of history.
4: That just so happened to bear the name of the Persian king Darius.
0: And he says this finding was a huge deal. The first time anything bearing this king's name had appeared in modern-day Israel. It would provide key historical evidence about the origins of the Jewish holiday of Purim. And yet, two days later, we discovered this isn't real. It's fake. That same authority had to take down that video we played earlier, making the embarrassing admission that the sherd wasn't 2,500 years old. It was approximately one year old.
4: For those of us who study this stuff, for those of us who study archaeology and who know the story of Esther, all of
0: our BS detectors went off. Authorities say this was probably the work of an archaeology professor last summer showing a class on site how people would have carved into these sherds back in the day.
4: You write it from right to left, and I've done this before, but you would never, ever leave that sherd on the ground at an archaeological site.
0: Which Professor Cargill says raises questions of its own.
4: And then it would stay there just until the international media advisor for the president of Israel just so happened to find it on the surface when God knows how many other people were walking by this thing.
0: Regardless of where this fragment actually came from, Cargill says the archaeological community has been buzzing about the number of errors here by a trusted authority. Luckily, he says, they quickly did the right thing and admitted their mistake.
4: This is what scholars need to be willing to do instead of doubling down on their mistake. They
0: immediately, they immediately came out and said, We made a mistake. This is not authentic. But what led to this in the first place? Well, one issue, Cargill says, is timing. Purim is tonight. The finding was apparently in December. That might have led to a rushed review and perhaps a sense of tunnel vision. Secondly is what Cargill calls a growing trend of modern antiquities collectors accepting findings that are without provenance, without a ton of supporting evidence to show they came from where you think they came from.
4: If it's not found in a controlled excavation with credentialed licensed archaeologists doing the excavation we should not be publishing it we should not be talking about it
0: that he says results in findings like this one or even more famously the discovery that several key artifacts at the museum of the bible were inauthentic when people want to believe they've made history it gets a lot easier to skip the basics as for the Israeli Antiquities Authority, they say they take full responsibility for the mistake and that, quote, in terms of ethical and scientific practices, we see this as a very severe occurrence. By the way, Purim, of course, will go on without this little piece of ceramic. So for those of you observing, hope the costumes are great. Hope the hamantaschen is yummy. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow.